are at the end now, the very last of the last sermons in this series, sermon on the series on the Sermon on the Mount, which we're calling Words from the Mountain. And so, for the last thirty-four weeks, we have been journeying through following Jesus around this mountain, where he's been teaching us, and we have been listening to his words. But today, we're going to do something different. We aren't going to listen to his words. Well, we are, but we are more going to look at him, who he is, and what he has done. We are looking at the king who is up upon the mountain, but specifically, we are looking at him, this king who is up upon the mountain, and how he has come down the mountain, and what that actually means. And here's what he does. He's the king from up upon the mountain, and he comes down, and he comes up to us, and he says, follow me. Now, you need to know this. You need, you need to know that always, at all times, there is tons of pressure coming at you on how you should respond to a variety of issues going on in our world. So we have a pandemic that we are walking through, and there is tons of pressure, political pressure on both sides, pressure from your family, pressure from your friends on how you should be responding to this pandemic. There are racial issues that are happening right now, and on both sides of the aisle, and from your friends and from your family, there is all of this pressure on how you should respond. We have an election coming up, and there's going to be pressure on both sides of the aisle of how you should respond. And you are sitting there right in the middle, in between, you're in the aisle. And all this pressure is coming at you of who you should listen to, what you should do, and then Jesus walks down the aisle... And he comes up to you and he says, hey, let's get out of here. He said, I got a new way for us to live. Follow me. That's what today is about. Jesus could easily be argued to be called the greatest leader of all time. I could easily make that argument. Along with that, he has called his leaders or his followers to do, to, basically here's what I want, how I want you to know. It is costly to follow him costly to follow him. However, that high cost also comes with an infinitely higher reward. So today we're going to look at these verses of the one who is up upon the mountain, who has come down, that we're going to follow, and we're going to look at one, his identity, two, his authority, three, his magnetism, four, his path, and five, your path. So his identity, his authority, his magnetism, his path, and then your path. So our verses, open up your Bible. We're in Matthew 7, and we're going to read verses 28 all the way into, well, we're going to read just into chapter 8, verse 1, and then we're going to jump to chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. So let me read that for you. Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And then skip to verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, 
and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Wow. Pretty intense. Probably you're a bit confused about what he said there at the end, or you've got a lot of questions about it, and that's good. But before we get to that, before we can understand what Jesus meant by those words, we have to understand first his identity, and second, the authority that he brings when he speaks those words. So the first point, his identity, here's what I want you to see. Jesus came down the mountain, and that speaks everything about his identity. He's been teaching from up upon the mountain, and it's not a coincidence that our text is telling us that he's come down the mountain. No human, since the beginning of time, has come down the mountain except for two. Jesus and Adam. Well, Eve came also, but, but the way the Bible is emphasizing is Adam is coming down the mountain. Now, here's, here's the significance of this. When you look at mountains in the Bible... Oftentimes, it's referring to the mountain garden of God, meaning it's referring to Eden. So, in the history of the cosmos, two people have come down the mountain garden of God, Adam and Jesus, and both for very different reasons. So, I want to look, I want to look at these two guys and compare the reasons why they're coming down the mountain. So, first, Adam came down the mountain because he was thrown out. Jesus voluntarily comes down the mountain to get us back to Eden. While Adam was thrown down because of sin, Jesus came down to deal with sin. While Adam, while Adam came down a rebel, Jesus came down to save rebels. While Adam came down and brought a curse with him, Jesus came down to lift the curse. While Adam was a son of God who became an orphan, Jesus comes down a son and became an orphan on the cross in order to make us sons and daughters of God again. While Adam left the garden because of guilt and shame, Jesus left the garden to deal with guilt and shame. While Adam left brokenhearted, Jesus came to the brokenhearted. While Adam left because of his hatred for God, Jesus came because of his love for you. Adam left because of a cosmic and divine injustice committed on his own part. Jesus left to bring justice against sin, yet at the same time deal with our sins so that we might still be forgiven. And justice can be accomplished all at the same time. Adam brought hell down the mountain with him. Jesus brought heaven. Adam brought suffering. Jesus suffered to make sure our suffering would not be our end. Adam came down the mountain losing his crown because he tried to take it from God. Jesus came down the mountain voluntarily laying his crown aside so that we might then be crowned again. Two very different characters, both going down the mountain, but for very different reasons. Jesus is the king of Eden. He was there in the midst of the garden. He was there when Adam and Eve rebelled. He was there to clothe Adam and Eve. He was there before Eden was even created. He is outside of creation. He's above creation. He's up upon the mountain, yet he comes down into creation. He's both glorious and intimate. He's both ruler and rescuer, judge, yet judged on the cross for us, king, yet servant, creator of life who died by entering into death to do away with it. He entered into death 
and then punched a hole through it by laying his fists down. Many people think of Jesus as a great moral teacher, and that's certainly true. But if you just make him out to be a teacher, then he never comes down the mountain to get you. He could easily be a teacher from up upon the mountain. But the point of him coming down the mountain is because it's to point you out to the realization that he is the God-man who has come to rescue. Our culture today loves this, loves this idea that Jesus is a great teacher. In fact, we love to sit at a distance from him and look and listen to his teaching and say, Man, I, I don't know that I could live that way, but I'm going to adopt this way of thinking. This is the right way of thinking. This is the right way we should approach life. Yet if I don't live that way, it's okay. As long as we agree with him, it's fine. Our culture needs to come to the realization that you can't approach Jesus that way. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said some crazy things. He said, Blessed are you who are persecuted for my name's sake. Now, what he's saying is, hey, if you die because you're telling people about me, you're going to be blessed. Who says that? The one who is up upon the mountain. He is crazy enough to say something like, the entire Bible is pointing to me, to him. He says everything, every word is all pointing to him. Who says something like that? The one who's come down from the mountain. Don't mistake him for something that he isn't. He is no mere teacher. He's the one who's come down from the mountain for us. And that is why he speaks with so much authority. When our verse says that everybody was amazed at him because of his authority that he had, it's to say this, because they compare him to the scribes. So, so here's how it worked back then. A scribe or a teacher would teach, but as they taught, they were always quoting people who came before them. And the reason that they did that is to give themselves authority. In other words, it was seen that you were a good teacher if you knew what other people said before you and you quoted them. It gave you authority. But he quotes no one. How could he quote someone? How could he quote someone who came before him when he was there when the world was created? He could not. And so he speaks with the authority of someone who was there before the foundation of the world. As a preacher... My only authority comes from my relationship to the truth of the scriptures. That's the only place my authority comes from. In other words, I have no authority in myself at all. All my authority might only comes from the scriptures. But Jesus is the very author of life and of the Bible. Therefore, he holds all the authority in what he says. So you think about it like this. Imagine there's this room of people, these scholars, and they're reading this book, and they're trying to figure out what the author of this book meant. And so they're arguing, and one, says, one, one person says, this is what the author means by this. And the other person says, no, I think this is what the author means. And another person says, no, this is what the author means. And then all of a sudden, the doors burst open, and in walks the author. And he said, actually, this is what. That is the authority that Jesus speaks with. There's a saying that goes like this. When the real leader speaks, everyone quiets down and listens. Here we see Jesus quieting 
all other voices in our mind and all around us because he is the very author of life. He is truth. He's the way. Jesus doesn't speak with authority because he studied some book about how to be an effective teacher and communicator. He just simply speaks with authority because he is the author of life. We are all trying to figure out what truth is. How will you know when you find it? By your own reason? Well, if you trace out your own reason long enough, eventually you realize that you must put your trust in some higher authority than you. Who will that authority be? Jesus is saying, I'm the author, so put your faith and trust in me. Now, go to him, but you can go to him for the wrong reason. When the people saw Jesus, they knew that there was something different about him. He was speaking with authority. He was kind yet strong. He was gracious yet someone that seemed like you should fear. And so all of these great crowds started following him. That's what chapter 8 verse 1 says. So this is our third point. He's magnetic. And so he, he is, his identity we looked at, we looked at his authority, and now we're looking at his magnetism. Most people today are attracted to Jesus to a degree. They're drawn in. They're not ready to quite worship him yet, but they like him. They like his teaching. And when someone says that, when someone says they just simply like Jesus, it means that they're not listening to him. The magnitude of what he claims demands that we either do away with him or we worship him. Either he's a crazy lunatic or he is the son of God and we ought to bow to him. So the crowd this great crowd that started following him weren't his true followers. How do I know that? Well, in the Gospel of John, we see that as he's feeding these, ten, these thousands of people at this, this great thing that happens after his teaching, that he says some crazy things, and at the end, they're like, out, we're out. So he loses all of his followers. Uh, and this magnetism of his created these false followers. And you see this often. People are just good with Christianity. Like, it seems like the best, and it's what people are around me are doing, so I'm going to do that. But Jesus has none of that. We see from verses 18 through 22 that Jesus will run those people off. And he does that by showing them his path. This is our fourth point, his path. He doesn't run them off because he doesn't want them to follow him. He runs them off because they are not his true followers. And the way he runs them off is by telling them what his path is and by showing them what is required of them if they are going to go down this path. So look, look at verse 18. So at this point, into chapter 8, Jesus starts healing people. And this healing draws a crowd. Now, I don't have time to give a, a case for miracles, but just know that the reason that he's drawing such a crowd is because he's healing people. And then this scribe, this teacher comes up and says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, it's likely that this scribe has no intention of actually following Jesus. This scribe is likely chasing success in his own teaching. He's thinking, wow, look at Jesus and what he's doing. I could probably learn a lot from him. I could be successful 
by learning from him. In fact, maybe I could be like a second-hand man to Jesus in this great movement. And so the scribe says the right thing. I'll follow you anywhere you go. But Jesus recognizes that his motives are all wrong. He just wants success. Now, how do I know that? Well, well look, in the Gospel of Matthew, whenever, whenever anyone approaches Jesus and calls him a teacher, they're about to be corrected. Some, he's, something is being done here. The scribe is approaching Jesus in a wrong way. So Jesus says this to him. Okay, you want to follow me? Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, me, I have nowhere to lay my head, he says. Now, what's he saying? Jesus is saying that he is homeless. That his home is back up the mountain where his father is. But he is not going back until he passes through death. He's saying that he's a refugee. He's a wanderer. He, he's a sojourner. He's an exile. He is a bum. And he is homeless. Has no bed to lay his head down upon. And what he's saying to the scribe is, look, Mr. Scribe, you're trying to build a home in this world. You're trying to find success to build this grand home in this world. And so Jesus says to him, if you want to follow me, your home is not here. You are in exile when you follow me. Now what the scribe is doing is this. He's finding his identity in his career, perhaps. He's making this world his home. And he's saying, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus, because I know that if I follow you, I will have this successful career and be able to build this great home and this great empire here on this earth. And Jesus will have no such thing of it. He says, I don't give you a home here. I make the Christian all the more aware of their homelessness. For the Christian, life in this world is to be so aware that this is not your home that you begin to groan inwardly knowing that something is wrong. You know you're in the wilderness. You know you're in the desert. So you say, this is not my home. So if you want to follow Jesus, he says, pack your bags. We're leaving this world behind. We're leaving everything you chased after, everything you valued, everything you hold dear. We're leaving it all behind to build a better world. And to some degree, you can deal with that. Like, that's pretty intense, but it feels maybe a little bit like an adventure. But this next thing that he says... Well, listen, here's what happens. This disciple, who, who seems has either just started following Jesus or like has been following him just for a short period of time, Jesus says, pack your bags to this follower, and the follower says, wait, first I've got to do something, Jesus. I've got to go bury my father, because he's just died. And then Jesus says, leave the dead to bury the dead. Now, at that point, you got to be thinking, oh man, maybe I picked the wrong guy to follow. And that seemed pretty harsh. So this new follower says, yes, I'll follow you. But first, here, let me, we got to explain this. First, let me go do this. In other words, I will follow you, Jesus, but I've got something more important I need to do first. And Jesus won't have any of it. He says, no, come now. Now, we need to understand what Jesus is doing here because Jesus does not think of it a bad thing that he wants to bury his father. All throughout the Bible, we see God say, honor your father and your mother. Jesus teaches on this multiple times. It's a good thing what this guy wants to do. It's the right thing of what he wants to do. But the problem is the order. 
Not the time in which he wants to do it, but the importance of it. So in other words, this guy has just made his father more important than Jesus. So let me explain this. What Jesus is saying to this man is if you don't make me your first importance, then you will be no good to your family. What he's telling him is this man, he's telling this man, you are spiritually dead. And you're about to go as a spiritually dead man to go bury your physically dead father. Jesus is pressing in on him, saying, no, first follow me so you can be spiritually alive. What this man should have said is, Jesus, let's go. I'm ready to follow you. Now I've got a question for you. My dad just passed away. And it's time for his funeral. So, should I go bury, like, should I go to this funeral? Should I go bury him? And my guess would be Jesus would say, yes, let's go. Let's go do it together. Jesus is trying to get this man to first follow him, trust him fully in everything he should do with his life, and then let this man follow Jesus wherever he ought to go. And realize that until Jesus is his everything, he won't really be able to properly bury his father. He won't be a good son to his mother, and he won't be a good spouse. He won't be a good father. Why, why do I say that? What do I mean by that? Well, C.S. Lewis helps us here, and he says this. There are first things and second things. First things is God. Second things is his creation. And, and if you could put first things first, which is God, you put him first, and second things second, which is creation, you will enjoy both God and creation. But then he says, if you put second things first, then you won't enjoy either. If you make creation more important than the creator, you will enjoy nothing. Why? Because here's what that guy would be doing. Here's what this follower would be doing. He's making his father in that moment the most important thing in his life. And what has he done now? He's elevated his father to the point of his God. And he's going to a funeral to bury now his God. That will destroy you. That will lead you into a deep depression because your God is now dead. But if you keep first things first, you then know how to handle death. You know how to handle letdown. You know how to handle things that are not going the way they ought to go. And the same is true for all of us. We tend to make our family our God. And as soon as we make our family our God, we set ourselves and our families up for a massive letdown. And it's, and it's, in a way, driving everything around us to hell. And that seems intense, but it's just what Jesus is saying. Let me show you. Make your children your everything, and they will be like a god to you. Then you will begin to go to your children like you ought to be going to God, expecting them to give you what only God can give you. That's a lot of pressure on your kids. So they won't meet those expectations. And they will begin to get frustrated over time as they grow older, and they will begin to resent you because you're never satisfied with them. And you will be frustrated because they're not giving you what only God can give you. And they will begin to be suffocated under the pressure of being to you what only God can be to you. And all they'll want to do is get out from underneath your rule. So the picture looks like this. There's a kid grown up as the God of his parents. And finally he gets to go away to college, and he gets in the car and finally is driving away. And his, his parents go running down the street, chasing after him because their God has just left the driveway. 
and this kid looks in the rearview mirror and sees his parents running and pushes on the gas even harder because he can't wait to get out from underneath the rule of, their, of his parents who just put all of these expectations on him that he would never be able to meet. The same thing can happen with anything. With your career, like potentially with that scribe, with your job, with your looks, with your spouse, with your possessions, you must make Jesus your everything, your number one. Your path is to find yourself going all in with Him. Let Him teach you how to live and how to think. Not your, oh, here we go, not your political party. Not even your parents, not your teachers, not your friends, not the group of people that you hang out with, not pressures coming from around you, but you make him your everything and you follow after him and he teaches you how to live your life. More so than, dare I say, your parents, dare I say, your political party, dare I say, your friends and your group of people. He knows what you need way more than anybody else knows that you need. And what Jesus is doing, and he's putting pressure on you, saying, leave it all behind and come and follow me. But as you leave it all behind, you actually get all the more your family, your friends. You actually get to love them more and enjoy them more because you're enjoying them in their proper place. If you put anything in front of Jesus, you are putting that thing as the thing you are following after, that person. And so then you can't enjoy them. But if Jesus is in front of you, then everyone else is beside you. And you enjoy them in their proper place as you are meant to. Which means you love them more than you did before. Because when you follow after Jesus, He is love. And He teaches you how to love. So He gives you the power to love the people beside you, and he teaches you what it looks like to love the people beside you. And so by making Jesus more important than your spouse, you love your spouse more. By making Jesus more important than your kids, you begin to love your kids better and more. He puts everything in its proper place. So your path is to follow after him, the king upon the mountain who has come down. And look what led him down. He followed his own path down, and it led right to you. And then it led to the cross, where he would lose what was everything to him, his father, so that he might come and take hold of you and grasp you and take you to his great love, his father. And not only that, because look, we follow after the first Adam into chaos, death, sin, and hell. But we follow after the second Adam who has passed through it all and then has broken through death to bring us with him out through death to everything we long for, our Father in heaven. Follow him and he will show you what you need to do next. And he will take you to the one who finally satisfies your longing heart. Let's pray. God, give us this strength, give us the obedience, give us the feet that will follow after your Son, our Savior, the King upon the mountain who has come down. Teach us how to follow 
after the one who is worth following. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.